from John 19, verses 16 through 30. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We gather, my brothers and sisters, to commemorate Christ's death, the work that had to be done for our salvation. The Bible tells me that my sins require Jesus' suffering and death, but as I prepared for today, the Bible's account is also telling me something, that this single act has more far-reaching implications. Despite the sadness that goes with my Savior hanging on the cross, I see a living hope. I see a deeper gratitude that goes with God's grace. And I have the knowledge that this supremely loving act has a glorious ending. When I was young, Good Friday had a, uh, a different meaning. It was kind of a marker, a calendar marker for me. School was out. Lent's deprivation of chocolate was nearly over. Easter's uh, good meals were going to be just two days away. As I got older, Good Friday became more intense. I was raised, as some of you know, I was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. And the Good Friday liturgy combined an austerity and a solemnity. The lighting was minimized, the altar was stripped, and the light that remained was directed at the crucifix. I remember the smell of the incense hitting the charcoal and the censer. And I remember the sound of that censer clanging against the chains as the smoke rose, symbolically at least, our prayers to heaven. Overall, the setting was gloomy, focusing on Christ on the cross. The liturgy was moving, but it was incomplete. 
When I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit gave me a 360-degree view of this day. So why don't we dig in and see what John's going to tell us. Jesus' story is spread throughout the Old and the New Testaments. And in case you're worried, I'm not going to go over all of them. But I want to take verse 17 for an example, just a little bit before the passage that Allison read. John writes that Jesus is carrying his own cross. It's in there, signifying that Jesus alone is the unique, sinless, perfect, obedient son who is solely capable of bearing the weight of our sins and the Father's judgment. The Father had always had our salvation prepared, and the Son is the means by which that salvation is achieved. From John's depiction of the crucifixion, I'm going to focus on three things this evening. First, we're going to see that short exchange that points to what's wrong with our hearts. Second, we're going to see the solution for what ails us. And third, we're going to see how that solution changes us. What's our problem? How can our problem be fixed? And how is that fix implemented? First, our problem. Verses 19 through 22 are going to describe a short exchange between the chief priest and Pilate. Verse 19 says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth King of the Jews. Later in verse 21, it says, the chief priest, of the, uh, chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather the man claim that I am the king of the Jews. Why are the chief priests so angry? In their minds, this inscription gives Jesus standing. Jesus frequently pointed out that the religious leaders had turned their actions into little g-gods. Their leaders had devoted themselves to the law without understanding that the rules of the law pointed to God, that it pointed to a softer heart. Over time, the chief priests had turned God's perfect law in a way to stratify their society. The stricter you adhered to the law, the more political power and earthly riches you would be blessed with. By creating this social structure that rewarded apparent devotion to God's perfect law, they missed God. So what is the anger directed at? It's directed at Pilate. Pilate's asserting their king as someone who overturned the foundation upon which their value system was built. And it's clearly just a Pharisee's worldview that God, who had distinguished them as children of Abraham, it's this distinction that is their means of being right with God. And their righteousness was imputed to them as a birthright. That can't be the truth. No, Jesus' kingdom is built on faith in God, and Jesus is the king. The inscription was right after all. Pilate's response was dismissive. Pilate basically said, I wrote what I wrote. What is Pilate's basis for being so haughty? Well, Pilate has a worldview too, right? His little G God is built on the notion that there's no God and I make my own way. Thus, we see two conflicting worldviews embedded in this little spat between the chief priest and Pilate. One view maintains that my good works are my salvation. The other view holds that I am my own God. When these two views come into contact, conflict inevitably is going to arise. C.S. Lewis offers a similar little exchange in The Great Divorce. During the bus ride from hell, he writes, one of the quarrels which were perpetually simmering in the bus had boiled over, and for a moment there was a stampede. Knives were drawn, pistols were fired, 
conflict. What Lewis is saying is that when we're separated from God on a bus in hell, there's no middle ground. What matters is what I want. Anything in my way deserves knives and pistols. It would be easy for us to just skip over this encounter. It's one of those eyewitness accounts that the Bible specializes in. Yet in this snippet, there's, there's something for us to chew on, for something for us to meditate on. Both the chief priest and Pilate are practicing their pride. I know in my own heart, it's just so easy for me to access this sort of self-glorification. However, the short, the short encounter carries a very important lesson. The cost of the worldview is great. Forgive me, I'll sound like an economist for just a minute, but Psalm 37 does just a complete cost-benefit analysis for us. It says, but, for, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The prosperity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. So what does this exchange teach us? It's God teaching us yet again that we are the problem in this relationship. If the story ended there, we'd be in big trouble. But fortunately, John is going to go on. The second point is amazing. Even in our rebellious pride, God's grace is present and greater. By knowing what the problem is, there's a solution, and that solution is right in front of John. Let's look at verses 23 through 25, and let's see that, first of all, the word of God is going to solve our problem. Moreover, that word of God is multifaceted. So it's going to take me for a second just to unpack this a little bit. First, the truth is that Jesus is the word of God. Second, we see that Jesus finds ultimate comfort in God's word. And third, the word of God is Jesus's source of power. If we go back to the beginning of John's gospel, it's written in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John identifies Jesus as the Word of God. He was um, actually using, a, in the Greek, a, a word that's, that's uh, the word's logos. Forget for a moment, just for a moment, the outburst of, of literary sophistication that's being exhibited by a Galilean fisherman, which if it does nothing for us, it's, it's a testimony. It's assuring us that this is an amazing God-inspired uh, uh, testimony, a word of God. But as we see, what John is doing is something much deeper. He's using Stoic philosophy from the Greeks to identify, to identify Jesus as the word of God. That term logos applies to a principle which refers to a universal divine reason, imminent in nature yet transcending all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and humanity. Sounds Greek, doesn't it? It's an eternal and unchanging truth present from the time of creation, available to every individual who seeks it. In light of this truth, Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the divine being, imminent and transcendent. He's the word of God made flesh. Second, Jesus is going to find comfort in God's word. During trials, Jesus needs some kind of love language to turn to, and what's he turn to? He turns to scripture. In John's gospel, the soldiers are dividing Jesus' garment. The spoils of the crucifixions was going to the soldiers. That was a common practice. But in this case, scripture had anticipated this verse 
verse 18 of Psalm 22. The psalmist wrote, They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots for my garments. The other gospel accounts refer to Jesus speaking scripture on the cross. And I think there's a really simple point to take from this. Jesus is never disobeying. When confronted with trials, and arguably the agony and the suffering on the cross is the pinnacle of human trials, he finds comfort by speaking God's word. If the perfect man, blameless in every way, turns to the word of God, the true logos, as, as a solution to the problem, it seems like a pretty good solution for us to use as well. Lastly, Jesus relies on Scripture because there is a power in the Word of God. Genesis drives this truth into our hearts. God speaks and there is light. In addition to the creating power, it is the sustaining power for Jesus' cross experience. The only way that Jesus could endure the suffering on the cross is to tap into the sustaining power contained in the Word of God. When we think about it, he is being cosmically ripped from the most perfect relationship he has always known. But he continues his obedient stance. Jesus breathes scripture. We are reminded in chapter 4 of Matthew where it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what does this message mean for my life? On my good days, I am drawn to God's word. When I'm reading my Bible, my spirit's renewed, I see God's grace, I feel his presence, and I'm armored against Satan's lies and my own efforts to undermine my relationship with God. Some days I cannot wait to be with the Father, with our Father. On other days, however, my own initiative has a foothold and I struggle. This is life in the already, but not yet. The Holy Spirit is already living in my heart, and these trials are an invitation to let him be in even greater control until the race is complete and I'm no longer separated from God. There's a very short way to encapsulate the first two points in John's crucifixion. The 18th century Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards writes, If the case be such indeed that all mankind are by nature in a state of total ruin, then doubtless, the great salvation by Christ stands in direct relation to this ruin as the remedy to the disease. So we are our own worst enemy, but God gracefully offers us a cure. So now we know what the problem is and we know that God's word solves our problem. There's one more truth to tap into. In our reading today, we, are, we can see how we can relate to one another and that the Holy Spirit is the means by which our lives are changed. In verses 26 and 27, John writes, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. With his death imminent and the excruciating physical pain and the separation from the father going on, Jesus gives us a picture of how we, should, how we should live in the light of his atoning sacrifice. In those seven words, he offers a complete summary of the community commandments. By recognizing in our own selfishness is the heart of our problem and that Jesus is the solution, is God's word, there's one more step. By telling his beloved disciple to care for this woman and for her to care for her son, 
these seven words tell us what our lives will look like when we have faith in what he is, when we have faith that he's the solution to our problem, when we see the cross in its perfect light. But there's still a question. Does Jesus just tell us what to do? None of us can just obey, right? The Nike slogan, just do it, doesn't apply here. We need something more for us to get the knowledge from that knowledge in our head into our heart. As a created being, I know that I bring nothing to the cross. I am not my own savior. For me, I need to see the cross as the act that he has done everything. When Jesus says it is finished, I can believe that God entered my state of rebellion. Indeed, while I was rebelling, he entered into it and he paid my debt to the father. I understand that my righteousness comes to me not from my own actions, but by believing that Christ died for me. To go from my head to my heart, I begin to see just how beautiful Christ is, how that act is. The breakthrough comes when there's a change in orientation. Instead of obeying the law to save myself, I'm free to obey the law because Christ is the object of my affection. I see how his total obedience, what it looks like, I realize I cannot accomplish this on my own, and I gratefully turn to him as a savior. So now I've got my 360-degree view of what the, what the cross is doing for me. There's one more step, brothers and sisters. Jesus does not leave me to figure out how to lovingly obey him. Indeed, he gives me the means by which you and I can obey him. After the resurrection, John writes in chapter 22, verse 22, sorry, Chapter 20, verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. By giving us the Holy Spirit, we have all the resources we need to receive God's grace, to love one another, to bear fruit, and to bear our trials and tribulations more like Jesus. So the seven words he says in John's gospel opens the door. It provides us with the Holy Spirit, with the means by which the cross permits us to have these deeper personal relationships. We have infinite access to the Father through Jesus as our advocate. And by the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to love one another and to care for one another. I guess more importantly, what I think is that Jesus is telling us we have the freedom to love like that because he bore the cross, he suffered the crucifixion, and on Sunday he's going to rise for us. As I close, I want to come back to John's account of the crucifixion for just one last point. As we look at the backbiting that's going on between Pilate and the chief priest, um, we can use the Old Testament to help us see things just a little bit differently, maybe a little bit more broadly. Pilate proclaimed that Jesus is king of the Jews. The inscription is written in the three primary languages of the Palestinian corner of the Roman Empire. Right, they're written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. In this simple act, God is working through Pilate to fulfill a very a long ago held prophecy. That prophecy was the covenant that he made with Abraham. In Genesis 15, it's revealed to us that it is through Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Those three languages are opening the door that the gospel is going to go everywhere. It's going to go to all the reaches of the earth. Jesus is fulfilling that promise. 
The last thing I want to say is that we, I think that what John is telling us is, is that uh, we've got this important point. Jesus is king. It's in the inscription. It's an upside down view of kingship, no less. He's paid our debt completely. He's accepted our rebellion and he's loved us despite it. He died so that we can live. I think our hearts yearn for such a king and that there he is, he's on the cross for us. On this side of the cross, we're blessed to see how God has gloriously planned for our salvation. And in typically paradoxical fashion, we look upon his death with sadness, yet know that Sunday is death's great defeat. Will you pray with me?